For another perspective on this fascinating tumor, I met with Dr. Michael Tuttle, who began our conversation by commenting on some of the key statistics in thyroid cancer. Thyroid cancer is now the number one increasing cancer in women. About 35,000 or so cases diagnosed each year in the United States. Fortunately, only about 1,500 deaths. So there's about 300 or 350,000 survivors of thyroid cancer that are around, many of them taken care of by endocrinologists. We generally say that thyroid cancer is, you know, out of all the cancers that you can have, it certainly has one of the best overall survivals and the best prognosis. Most of our patients have 20-year survival rates that exceed 90-95%. So the challenge in thyroid cancer is identifying that 5 or 10% that are going to do poorly and treating them more aggressively, and probably even more importantly, identifying those patients that are going to do very well for a long time and not over-treating those low-risk patients. So we've seen a change in endocrinology and thyroidology over the last 5 to 10 years of we're really risk-stratifying thyroid cancer patients. No longer is everybody getting total thyroidectomy, everybody getting radioactive iodine, and everybody getting the same follow-up which now makes this sort of clinical care of thyroid cancer patients in some ways more difficult. Because now as oncologists and specialists treating this, we really have to understand low-risk patients and high-risk patients, and we're tailoring the therapy to thyroid cancer patients much more than we ever have. The vast majority of thyroid cancers are papillary thyroid cancer, some 80%. That's the typical thyroid cancer that arises in 20 and 30-year-old people, which is our biggest demographic. The papillary cancer, 80-90% of the cancers. A smaller number of follicular thyroid cancers, maybe 5 or 6%. But we really lump the follicular thyroid cancers and the papillary thyroid cancers as the same sort of REI responsive. Now what about anaplastic tumors and medullary tumors? Yeah, the anaplastic tumors we think arise from more well-differentiated papillaries. Because if you really look at the anaplastics in the few cases you can actually take them out, you usually find a transition between a papillary to a poorly differentiated to an anaplastic. Now, that doesn't mean that the papillaries sit there for 30 years and then transition. Sometimes they transition very quickly. But the anaplastic really is a completely different animal. It's so poorly differentiated, it doesn't concentrate radioactive iodine. They are generally not surgically resectable because their growth pattern is not one of pushing tissue planes out of the way. They go straight through tissues and jugular veins and carotid and trachea. What's the typical clinical presentation? Usually a rapidly enlarging mass in the neck, and the differential is actually lymphoma. So their presentation, we're always trying to figure out, it's growing at that pace over several days or a month than an adult lymphoma might. So when they get sent to see us with a mass in the neck that's increasing over the last week or 10 days, many times with some early dysphagia and some early shortness of breath. So if you think about the presentation of anaplastic as being very similar to a lymphoma, it runs that way. How are they managed? Poorly. We treat them primarily with external beam radiation. If you ever get the occasion to operate on one, and occasionally you will find an anaplastic that's small, they're not presenting with that enlarging mass that you think you're taking out a papillary and it turns out to be a small anaplastic. So several studies have shown if they are resectable, that gives you the best progression-free survival, but that's seldom the case. So most of the time, it's external beam radiation with or without some radiation-sensitizing chemotherapy. And about how many cases a year are there? The anaplastic's probably more like 300, 500. 
And what's the natural history? What happens to these people? Natural history is if we treat them with external beam radiation, we usually hold the disease at bay for two or three months, and it begins to regrow. And they die a death of asphyxia and direct invasion of the tumor into the trachea. We have long discussions with the patients about whether or not we even want to do tracheostomies because the tumor generally just grows right out through the tracheostomy. So it's one of not-so-slow, sort of rapid, progressive death. Any systemic therapy that helps? You know, we've tried everything. There are actually several clinical trials going on now where it looks like there's been one remarkable case of a remission from combretostatin at Case Western Reserve. So there's a couple trials of that. Turns out, for some reason, the anaplastics have a lot of EGF receptor. So a lot of the EGF receptors that you guys are using for other tumors are beginning to be looked at. And oddly enough, PPAR gamma is a pathway that appears to be up in anaplastic cancer. And there are some medicines aimed at that. So mostly clinical trials-based things right now. How many patients a year do you yourself see with an anaplastic? Probably one or two a month. One or two a month? Yeah. Even in our practice, it's an unusual tumor. But to be fair, part of that is if you call me from Michigan, you have anaplastic, I'm going to probably tell you to stay in Michigan because there's not a lot at the cancer center we have to offer differently. What's the quality of life for these people as they progress and die? Are you usually able to keep them comfortable? Yeah, we're usually able to keep them comfortable because it's usually not painful because they're not into nerves and that sort of stuff. It's a local airway problem. And in fact, a lot of them die of pneumonia because they just can't clear their secretions. They'll usually have a paralyzed vocal cord on the side that the tumor starts. So most of the time, they don't really die of the tumor totally closing off the airway. They die of sort of inability to clear their secretions and end up with pneumonia and pass away from a pneumonia most of the time. What about medullary? Medullary cancer is a whole different animal. The only reason medullary is a thyroid cancer is that the C cells, which is where medullary arise, happen to stop in the thyroid. It's a neuroendocrine tumor. So I frequently tell people if those medullary cells didn't live in the thyroid, this would not be my cancer. It has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about so far. It arises from C cells, so it doesn't concentrate radioactive iodine. It's not responsive to thyroid hormone, so they don't need suppressive doses of thyroid hormone. In the grand scheme of things, it's a neuroendocrine tumor. And so the markers for it are calcitonin and CEA. It tends to have about 75% are sporadic, which means there's no familial genetic mutation. But there's about 25% that have a very well-defined genetic abnormality. These are the MEN2 syndromes and the familial medullary syndromes, where they have point mutations in the RET oncogene that is now commercially available. So the medullary patients, many times they'll present the same way. They present as a lump in the thyroid. They will present as palpable lymph nodes. They will, oddly enough, very often present as diarrhea. So this combination of diarrhea with a thyroid nodule should make you think of medullary. Because these medullary cells, because they're neuroendocrine cells, they'll make a lot of hormones that affect the gut, including calcitonin and CEA and a lot of neuropeptides. They can cause ACTH, Cushing sort of syndrome. They can cause gastrin-releasing hormone. So this combination of diarrhea with a thyroid nodule, while it's unusual, should ring the bells of medullary. Occasionally, they'll present with elevated CEA because somebody's done a CEA screen for their cancer. And medullary cancers, again, because they're neuroendocrine, they'll make CEA. 
So the medullaries tend to come in under a whole variety of different ways. About how many cases a year are diagnosed in the United States? Oh, in the medullaries, they probably represent 1 or 2% of all the thyroid cancers, so 1 or 2% of 35,000. And what's the number of deaths? Yeah, overall, in all of thyroid cancer, the number of deaths is about 1,500. So even in the medullaries, they typically have a long chronic disease course. It's persistent disease. It's hard to get rid of the medullary. Most of the medullaries already have lymph node metastasis when we operate on them. They tend to metastasize to the liver fairly early. So it tends to be a chronic disease course, a little bit like some of the carcinoids that run this chronic course for years, and then every once in a while they'll get out of control. It really feels more like a neuroendocrine tumor than it does any other sort of classic thyroid cancer sort of tumor. Are you usually able to diagnose this with FNA? Most of the time, not. Part of the reason is the FNA findings are very classic. And if you show the FNA findings at a medullary conference, everybody will get it. But if you slip a medullary FNA in the middle of a busy thyroid nodule conference, where they've been doing benign nodules, they've been doing thyroid cancer, the diagnosis is usually missed because it's so rare. And it's diagnosed as something benign? No, it's usually diagnosed as this is a cancer, but we can't tell what type. Or this is definitely a cancer, but it's not papillary. So they see spindle cells, they see nuclear changes, and you know it's not right. But medullary is so uncommon for the average pathologist, it doesn't click as to what that is. So in most of these cases, the surgeon goes in thinking maybe it's going to be papillary, but maybe not? Yeah, or maybe it's going to be some other tumor, that it's metastasis to the thyroid from somewhere. And are those usually diagnosed on frozen section in the surgery? Most of the time, not. It's usually diagnosed after surgery because the frozen section usually tells you the same thing, that it's atypical cells or spindly cells, definitely a cancer, but we can't tell what type yet. So the surgical approach ends up being the same as with papillary? It does, which is actually a little bit of a problem because what they usually think they're operating on is like a poorly differentiated papillary. You know, it's atypical. It's not hardly anaplastic, but it's got these spindly kind of looking cells. The operation for papillary is you just take the thyroid out, and if you don't see any lymph nodes, no big deal. The operation for medullary is usually some sort of lymph node cleanout, because medullary goes to the lymph node so often that unless it's a really tiny medullary, if it's a typical one or two or three centimeter medullary, the right surgery is to clean out the central neck and probably an ipsilateral neck dissection. So frequently, I'll get the consult that says, we didn't know we did medullary, we did a typical papillary surgery, and now do I need to go back and reoperate on the patient for the lymph nodes? So it is one of those that... Do you ever recommend that? You know, I used to a lot more than I do now. Now with ultrasound, what I do is I look at the calcitonin and CEA post-op. If it's low and the neck ultrasound is not showing anything, I generally don't. Although I tell patients there are people around the country that would recommend everybody being sent back. So it's one of those that the patient really has to help you decide... But most of these days, if the ultrasound is not showing anything significant over there, I don't rush back in for another surgery. So how do you evaluate and manage these patients once the diagnosis is confirmed and you're able to look at the pathology? There's a couple really important management issues with medullary. One is you really want to know before surgery so you get the right surgery and the right lymph node dissection. The other thing is the familial medullaries can have pheochromocytoma as part of their MEN2 syndrome. And you don't really want to find out somebody has a pheo in the middle of your surgery for thyroid. So if we know that we're or even a suspicion for medullary pre-op, they will be screened for pheo with appropriate urine and blood test. 
Also, if you have a suspicion pre-op, you just measure serum calcitonin. Serum calcitonins are sky high. You know, we're talking about people that have palpable nodules in their neck, one and two centimeter nodules. The normal calcitonin goes to 15 or 20. These guys will have calcitonins of 1,000, 2,000, 3,000. So as soon as somebody asks the question, could this be medullary, you can confirm the diagnosis. So we want to make sure that we're not dealing with some sort of familial syndrome afterwards, getting genetic counselors involved, doing genetic testing, because this is one of those situations where if your patient with medullary is positive for the RET gene, that means they are at risk for getting pheochromocytoma and hyperparathyroidism, so they need to be followed lifelong for that. And more importantly, their first-degree relatives need to have that same genetic testing because RET is autosomal dominant. So 50% of their kids will have the RET mutation. This is one of the best examples of using genetic testing to make a difference. Because if I'm RET positive and my son is RET positive, we're going to take his thyroid out when he's five or six years old. Hopefully I take out a normal thyroid before we transition to medullary cancer. So this is one of those situations people always argue, well, when you do genetic testing, are you doing any good? The answer to this one's absolutely yes. We can even get a little fancier than that because there are several different types of genetic mutations in medullary. And there's a pretty good correlation between the specific mutation and when they transition to medullary. And if they're going to have any of the other stuff like pheo and hyperparathyroidism. So it's not just an all or none genetic test. We can look at the chest. We see exactly which mutation in the RET gene is there, which point mutation, and can really use that to predict prognosis. Some of these genetic mutations, it doesn't look like they change to medullary until they're 25, 35, 40, or 50 years old. So I may not be as aggressive about doing surgery on their five-year-old. Other ones, the MEN2B mutations, some of those kids will transition to medullary before they're a year or two old. So we'll take their thyroid out a few weeks after birth. So the genetic testing component of this has gotten more complicated over the years. The take-home message for all of us is anybody diagnosed with medullary should be sent to genetic counseling, period, end of story whether they have a family history, whether there's no family history, because many times the patient that we're seeing is the first index patient. Now I'm starting to understand the paper. I saw that you were part of on the late age onset of medullary. I didn't understand it. I saw so most of these people don't present being older. That's right. Most of the classic familial medullaries, we've always taught sort of transition through C-cell hyperplasia to medullary in their sort of 12, 13, 14 years old. And if you don't do anything, you diagnose clinically their medullary cancer in their late teens and early 20s. With the widespread use of genetic testing, what we're finding is a lot of my patients that are 60 or 70 years old that I used to think were sporadic papillaries turn out to have a series of point mutations in the RET gene that have a very indolent biologic behavior. In one of these families we described, the patient was 70. His dad was 95. His dad had the mutation, too and had a little small nodule on his ultrasound. So there's no way I'm going to take somebody that's 95 years old. Even though I know he's got medullary cancer, he's going to do fine. So we begin to sort of divide up these mutations by saying, okay, when are you really likely to transition to medullary? And then that helps you and your family decide whether or not to do anything. Can you talk a little bit more about the natural history of medullary and what, if anything, you do as an intervention post-op? 
By and large, the treatment for medullary is surgery. We don't have effective chemotherapy for it. We'll talk in a minute about some of the experimental trials that are exciting, but we really don't have very effective chemotherapy. So largely this is surgery to recurrent disease in the neck, to mediastinal lymph nodes, embolization of liver lesions, external beam radiation to bone lesions, you know, that sort of put out the little fire at a time. The natural history of medullary varies from most of the time a chronic disease that's going to run a 20 or 30 year course staggered with the occasional neck recurrence. As they gradually grow up, we do a little bit more surgery. Some medullaries will have one or two or three surgeries scattered over 20 years, and that's probably the more typical course. There is a group of medullaries, though, that run an aggressive course, and they change over the course of a year or two. They're the group of patients that every time I send them to surgery, I'm going to think about doing external beam radiation on them, and they recur before I can get their external beam radiation. That's probably 1% or 2% of the medullaries. Probably a different mutation. We don't really understand who those guys are. Some of them are young. Some of them are old. Most of them are sporadic. So it's one of those courses, and I saw a young medullary yesterday. She asked how I'm going to do in a year or two, and I said, I don't know. Ask me in a year or two. You have to define the natural history for that individual patient. Just out of curiosity, tell me about the patient. How old was she? Yeah, she was 35 years old. She had her first surgery done about two years ago. They knew it was medullary, so they took the thyroid out, took a bunch of lymph They knew it was medullary based on what? The finding the aspiration. Hmm. So they'd gotten this one right. She was diagnosed in the community? Diagnosed in the community and was, as many of these medullaries are, sent to the cancer center because most surgeons aren't comfortable with that unusual tumor. So we did her first surgery, I think, about two years ago, um, three or four centimeter medullary. It was pretty aggressive. It was growing outside the thyroid. It was growing toward almost into the recurrent laryngeal nerve. 30 or 40 lymph nodes involved on both sides and the central compartment. Wow. Her calcitonin before surgery was in the 8,000, 9,000 range. And after surgery, fell down to about 500. Any family history? No family history. What kind of work does she do? She is a travel agent. Her and her husband run a travel agency. So she had this surgery with sounds like pretty scary findings, and mm-hmm. was she, any th- treatment after that? We did not. The treatment node after doing that is deciding whether or not you should do external beam radiation or whether you watch. The trouble with external beam radiation is I'm not convinced at all it's curative in medullary cancer. She's 32, 33 years old, and if I do external beam radiation, all of the subsequent surgeries are going to be that much harder. So we actually talked about it. I recommended against it. And what we followed was ultrasound every three or four months. But now that calcitonin level, is that elevated? Yes. So does that mean most likely she had residual tumor? Without a doubt. She's got persistent thyroid cancer, probably in some small lymph nodes in the neck. We didn't split the chest, so she probably has some mediastinal lymph nodes that we'll have to deal with eventually. When they have that many lymph nodes in the neck, they very often have liver metastasis. The liver metastases are notoriously hard to identify. They're isodense on ultrasound, on CT scan. If you really want to know laparoscopy and take a peek, you can see the liver studying. We seldom do that. So I told her, yes, you've got persistent medullary cancer. She had genetic testing? She had genetic testing. What did that show? Negative. So she had a normal RET oncogene. What fraction of patients? About 25%? 25% have the genetic mutation. 75% do not. Right. So since she did not have the genetic mutation and she had no family history to make me think my genetic testing was wrong, 
she doesn't have kids yet, but she didn't need family members. Nobody else tested. So she just had her surgery and went back to her life. She had her surgery. She went back to her life. She did okay until recently? She did okay. And over the course of the last two years, she's had some small growth in the lymph nodes in her neck. Based on physical exam? Based on ultrasound. So I follow her with serial ultrasounds. And a year and a half ago, she had some small lymph nodes that were seven or eight millimeters on the contralateral side. They're eight or nine millimeters now. The calcitonin yesterday was 700 instead of 500. And again, was the upper limit of normal? It should be less than 10 or 15. So the clearly persistent disease, that's where it's coming from. And does this usually correlate with tumor bulk? A little bit. Every medullary kind of makes their own amount of calcitonin. So for with an individual patient, yes. And as a general rule, yes. You know, if you got disease outside the neck, the calcitonins are usually in the 3,000, 5,000, 10,000. If you've got calcitonins after surgery in the 50 to 100 range, you're probably dealing with just little lymph nodes in the neck. So you're starting to get concerned about her. Yes. And she was the one that wanted to know how she was going to do in two years. So what I told her is you've got some growth. The other thing that we did when I saw the calcitonin a little bit higher a couple weeks ago, we came back and did CT scans in the neck and chest and MRI of the liver, trying to see if I could find where this structural disease was growing. In all likelihood, it still is in some of these small lymph nodes in the neck. But I had to honestly tell her, I'm not sure where that calcitonin is coming from. The cross-sectional imaging is not showing me much, so I don't have to rush in and do something right now. But yes, your tumor is growing. I can't measure it yet. Hopefully, it'll just grow with calcitonins raising two or 300 picograms per ml every six months, and I won't have to do anything for three or four years. So they usually stay on the same growth pattern that they're on. And again, doing something is most likely going to be a local thing. That's correct. It seems like this would be a great point to be using experimental systemic agents. Yeah, it absolutely is. Is she eligible for anything? She is. It's probably one of the most exciting targets because we know the targets, particularly in the hereditary ones. It's a specific oncogene mutation of the RET oncogene. And now there are specific RET tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Many of them crosstalk with VEGF receptor, with RET, and with EGF. So here we go, another pathway to add into our ever-expanding number of pathways. So where is RET in the cell, and how does it interface with other yeah. pathways? Thank God it's not a new pathway. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> it's, it is a tyrosine kinase pathway. So you can think of it in many aspects just like VEGF signaling, just like EGF receptor, just like insulin. But, I mean, what does RET do? Most of the time we don't know doesn't seem to have a great function. It's involved primarily in embryology and neural development in fetuses. But, I mean, you mentioned VEGF. Does it have anything to do with angiogenesis? RET doesn't. The only reason I mentioned VEGF is RET is a receptor tyrosine kinase, just like VEGF is a receptor tyrosine kinase. So, conceptually, you have the receptor on the membrane that then signals down through RAS and RAF and MAP kinase. So it's the same pathway that we're targeting with many of our targeted therapies. There's obviously a little bit of difference between RET and insulin and EGF and VEGF, but they're all tyrosine kinases. And so they signal down through this same pathway. In the familial medullaries, we know the activating mutation is what's causing the tumor, by and large. It's also probably what's sustaining the tumor. And so if you can target and turn off that RET gene, 
in mice and in cell culture, you markedly decrease cell growth and cell proliferation. Now, what about the pathophysiology in the sporadic tumors? Somewhere between 60 and 75% of the sporadic tumors have a rep mutation within the tumor. So it's not a germline mutation, but within the tumor, RET is still important. Hmm. So I guess it doesn't matter how you activate RET, whether it's genetically from mom and dad or whether it's sporadically inside the tumor, but it looks like that same RET pathway is also going to be important in the sporadic. So again, for my primitive molecular eyes, is that similar to what happens with the non-small cell lung cancers when you see the EGFR mutations just in the tumor, but not in the, I guess, somatic cell? Absolutely right. So it leads us down that same pathway in the sporadic patients. We're going to have to genetically type their tumors to see what their rep mutation status is. That's fascinating. Just taking a step back, are there any other tumors right now other than non-small cell and now medullary that have this phenomena of the mutation just in the tumor? I don't know that particularly. I haven't heard about anything. That's interesting. Yeah, it's come up in those two because we're trying to target specifically these I mean, I guess it could be happening all the time if you don't know what to look at. Exactly. And I think that's what's brought it on the forefront because now we're all trying to target these pathways. So in this situation, then, what was the next step for her in terms of maybe looking at her biology and seeing if she could maybe go on an experimental therapy? Yeah. For her, what I told her is since we're nearly two years down the road and we really don't have any structural disease progression, if she was my daughter, I wouldn't put her on experimental therapy right now. So I would guess people like her when they are ready for treatment would be a great source for clinical trials looking at new agents. Absolutely. What are some of the agents and trials out there? Yeah, there are probably half a dozen now. It turns out because the RET and the EGF and the VEGF are so similar, many of the drugs developed for VEGF happen to work on RET. And the drugs for EGF, turns out, a lot of them are dirty. They work on more than one. So we're able to, as usual, take some drugs that are being developed for the bigger cancers and apply them in thyroid cancer. And there's a couple that have been applied that looks like we're getting good targeted therapy. Several of these are oral agents. So they're the oral tyrosine kinases, which is very attractive to patients. What agents? Amgen 706 is one of them, and Zactima is the other. Both are tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Now, Zactima we know about from lung cancer. That's an interesting agent. Yes. It has a dual activity? It does. Or more, I guess. Yeah, it inhibits RET very, very specifically. It's one that we accidentally found inhibited RET. It certainly inhibits VEGF, and at higher concentrations that we achieve in the serum is EGF receptor as well. So its strongest component is RET and VEGF. But, yeah, that drug is hitting at least three different targets. And what's been seen so far with both of those agents, Actima and the Amgen agent? Anecdotally, good responses. There's been... Is that normally calcitonin, or how do you measure it? No, you know, we're still stuck using resist criteria, which is really a problem in some of these tyrosine kinases because we're seeing, like in one of my patients that had liver mets, the whole inside liquefied, but the dimension didn't change. And so by resist, it wasn't technically a response. But by PET and by MRI, we liquefied the whole inside of the tumor. That's interesting. So basically, these people are being treated when they have gross disease. That's correct. Pretty much to get on the medullary trials right now, because they're so early, we want to see structurally progressive disease that is at least a centimeter, which is the typical resist criteria. So for example, this woman would have to get to the point where she actually has disease that you can see. That's correct. And so we're not treating just the biomarkers right now. The other part of it is some of these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, one of them specifically brings down calcitonin as a gene effect. 
that has nothing to do with the tumor. So we have to be a little careful using biomarkers as our response to therapy. Can you talk a little bit about each one of the agents that's been tested and whether or not actual responses have been seen? Yeah, the real truth is we don't know yet because the two biggest trials, one's been the Amgen 706 that enrolled about 80 medullaries and 80 papillaries. All of us around the country have had five or six patients on it, and we've certainly seen some remarkable responses in terms of decrease in the size of lymph node mets, decrease in the size of liver mets. But whether that's going to be 1% of the patients, 10 or 20% of the patients, we don't have a good feel for yet. What's the side effect and toxicity profile? You know, tolerated pretty well, but some fatigue and tiredness, the typical desquamation of the hands that we see with a lot of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and quite a bit of diarrhea which has been a problem for the medullary guys. What about rash? A little bit, but dose-related, and you can usually give a break. And what about Zactima? About the same thing. Still, diarrhea has been a problem, some fatigue. And diarrhea is particularly a problem in the medullary patients because they already have tumor-induced diarrhea. So sometimes we're trading the tumor-induced diarrhea for drug-induced diarrhea, but pretty well tolerated at doses it should be effective. And again, with the Zactima, have objective responses been observed? Yeah, they certainly have. Sam Wells has shown some nice pictures of medullary metastatic to the breast that got smaller and some liver mets that clearly got smaller. So there is clearly some objective response from the drug certainly more promising than anything we've ever put people on. And again, there's a phase two trial cooking with Zactima? Yes. The phase two trial, and the original one they did was with the hereditary medullaries, because that's the perfect target. And then in Europe, starting soon, is Zactima for papillary thyroid carcinoma, using that sort of other mechanism of action of Zactima. Which is? The VEGF receptor activity. So, and just backtracking a little bit back to the papillary, what do we know about the biology of that tumor and its potential response or response to molecular agents? You know, amazingly, we know quite a bit about it. It's changed dramatically over the past five years. You're going to get tired of me talking about the RET pathway, but in papillary, the same tyrosine kinase pathway, whether it's activated through VEGF or different mutations in the RET gene, Medullary is a single point mutation in the RET gene. In papillary, there's an actual translocation. So it's a different molecular event, but you're activating the same pathway. So in papillary cancer, it turns out the majority of the papillaries have one of three steps of the pathway involved. Either the RET gene, RAS, which we know about, or BRAF. And like colon cancer, they're mutually exclusive mutations. The tumor has one of those three implying that this pathway is critical for the tumor. You only need one of these mutations to really drive the growth of the tumor. Why do you think that is? Do you think there's something about thyroid tissue or thyroid cancer? I mean, these tumors seem so different. Yeah, they are very different. It's not entirely clear to me. Because as I say, unless medullary lived in the thyroid, I wouldn't even be studying it at all. But this tyrosine kinase pathway is really common to varying amounts in all solid tumors. That's why all of us are learning about Zactima and all of us are learning about Amgen 706. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about systemic management of papillary cancer in terms of these molecular agents and also, I guess, in terms of traditional systemic therapy, chemotherapy? If we look at how we get to needing traditional therapy in papillary cancer, our systemic therapy in papillary cancer, as much as we can, is radioactive iodine. turns out that the thyroid cancers usually retain the ability to concentrate radioactive iodine. I tell my patients I used to be in the Army, so this is my heat-seeking missile. You swallow it, it'll go straight to your tumor, and we destroy it. And about 75% of the time, radioactive iodine is all that I need. 
I can treat their lung metastasis, I can treat their distant metastasis. In terms of curing them? Well, either we cure or we give them very, very prolonged disease stabilization. If the disease is very small in the lungs, like we see in teenagers, yeah, I think we cure a lot of those guys. If it's big, bulky disease, I don't cure it, but I keep it small and keep it from progressing. And does that usually require repeated treatments or just yeah, one? the average is two or three treatments. So if we're really going to get an effective treatment for the lung metastasis, now, they're scattered about a year or 18 months apart. So you do a treatment, you let the radioactive iodine work, and you do another one a year, 18 months down the road. So as long as radioactive iodine is efficacious, we see improvement in their CTs. We see thyroid globulins coming down. We're happy with that. About 25% of the time, radioactive iodine doesn't work, either because the tumor never concentrated radioactive iodine or because over the years I've killed out the REI responsive and selected for the clone that's not. It's that group of patients that is where we really need systemic therapies. The hard part in thyroid cancer is we've all seen patients with papillary cancers that have had one centimeter pulmonary mets that haven't changed in 20 years. They just sit there. And so it was a real challenge. Who do I put on a trial or who do I give chemo to and who do I watch? Turns out the PET scan sorts that out for us very well. The PET scan is not very good for run-of-the-mill papillary thyroid cancer. It's too slow growing. It doesn't use sugar. PET scan misses it all the time. But if your thyroid cancer begins to pick up FDG, It tells you the biology of that tumor. It's biologically more aggressive. Those are the distant metastases that change in six months and a year. And in fact, if your PET scan is markedly positive, you've got about a 30% survival from the time of the PET scan over three or four years. So we've really begun to use the PET scan in helping us identify who's going to get out of control, who's going to behave aggressively, and in some aspects, whether or not they need systemic therapy. So if you come see me with your pulmonary meds from papillary cancer, we usually don't know how long they've been there because somebody accidentally found them. If the pet's negative, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to tell you, we're going to watch CTs every six months, and we're not going to change. If, on the other hand, your PET scan's markedly positive, that's going to change, and we're going to need to do something. Such as? You know, the traditional chemotherapies are just incredibly disappointing. They've generally been some sort of adriamycin-based, with or without some platinum. And the most optimistic response rates are 20%. And that probably is short-term stabilization of disease. We are so disappointed with traditional chemotherapy that I send people direct to clinical trials. They don't have to fail adromycin. They don't have to fail anything. And in the NCCN guidelines this time around, we changed it, where we said if you have progressive disease, you should consider a clinical trial. And if there's no trial available, then you should consider chemotherapy. So that's a major change over the past five years. I mean, typically in these poorly differentiated thyroid cancers, we'd say, okay, you guys give them some adriamycin. If that fails, then send them over to us. So we've seen that as a major paradigm shift. Your group published a paper suggesting that maybe capecitabine would be useful in these patients. Yeah. That was, I think, on in vitro work? Yeah, that was just really based on do they have the right genetic profile, do they have the right molecular markers to do it. So has it been used? It has been used, not by us. The group at Fred Hutch treated some patients with it about a year or so ago. And I haven't seen that formal thing come out, but it looked like they were getting some disease stabilization. So you bring up a good point in that while the endocrinologists always say, well, chemo hasn't worked very well, I'm not sure we've tried very many of the new agents with it. What kinds of experimental approaches are being looked at and anything happening encouraging again with the TKIs, for example? Yeah, they really are. The main areas that are being looked at right now is as we understand more of the molecular pathways in papillary, we understand we actually have a whole host of targets. 
There's a lot of BRAF inhibitors out there. There are RAS inhibitors. There are mTOR inhibitors. There are AKT inhibitors. These pathways all seem to be involved in thyroid cancer. And if you go to the NCI website now, there's almost a dozen trials for papillary and poorly differentiated thyroid cancer. Five years ago, we had almost none. So now that we're starting to understand that, fortunately, in thyroid cancer, a lot of these same tyrosine kinase pathways that are important in other solid tumors are also important in thyroid cancer, we're beginning to use some of those drugs to target it. Now, have responses been seen with any of these molecular agents? Yeah, there have been. But, you know, I frequently remind my patients that I see a response 20% of the time with adriamycin. So I've been a little cautious in terms of being too, too optimistic. Yeah, but you know, when you have a targeted molecular approach and you have a patient and you see a tumor shrink, I mean, it even doesn't prove anything. To me, yeah. it sounds a little encouraging you're on the right track. It absolutely is. And that's probably the best way I read this tyrosine kinase data now. We are clearly on the right track. This is not like the old trials we put 20 people on and maybe one person changed. We're seeing much more changes than that. So the thyroid community is actually very excited about the tyrosine kinase stuff. Now we're trying to figure out which part of the pathway do we need to hit? Do we need to hit two different parts of the pathway? But yeah, we're definitely seeing some encouraging results from these. Now what about the two that you mentioned for medullary, the Amgen drug and Zactima? Yeah, both of those are also being tried. In, Again, responses have been seen? Yeah, they sure have. So, I mean, those two always get sort of the most play because they're oral agents and because they were already through the phase two trials. There's some other drugs from Pfizer that are anti-angiogenesis that still have the long numbers that we're sorting out. There are actually some newer drugs that are similar to Zactima, but it hit the RET gene a little bit better. They're more specific. They hit it tighter. So whether or not these are going to be the two that really play out, they certainly are going to be what we base the next round of studies on because they were the first ones out there and they're through the phase two trials. But I think they are just sort of the beginning entry to this. What's the difference in terms of the actual mechanism of action of the Amgen drug and Zactima? They're both multiple TKI. They're both multiple TKI inhibitors, and most of them sort of inhibit the actual binding of ATP in the actual binding pocket. But exactly the differences between those two, I'm not sure about. Interesting. You talked before about the natural history when the patient can't be cured of medullary. What about in papillary? What happens? What do these people die from? Yeah, it's actually one of the critical things, partly because our tools have gotten so good at finding microscopic papillary. Now I have a thyroglobulin assay that reads down to 0.2 nanograms per ml. When I was a fellow, we couldn't measure less than 5 nanograms per ml. I thought everybody was cured. We'd feel their neck, I'd have an imperfect blood test, and the patients were thrilled and they were happy. Now I got an ultrasound that can find 2 millimeter lymph nodes. I've got a blood test that can find TGs down to 0.2. And seven or eight years ago, we were over-treating all those people. They're usually the young people with little microscopic lymph node metastasis that are going to outlive their endocrinologist if we don't hurt them. But we were trying to make those numbers go away. And we were using a lot of radioactive iodine. We were using a lot of surgery. And now the pendulum has swung back to say, okay, we can find little small volume disease. Do we really need to treat every one of those? Are we hurting more people than we're helping? And so the paradigm shift is now gone to be fine. If you have a little thyroglobin of 0.2, I'm probably not going to do much about it. I'll do an ultrasound to make sure there's no big lymph nodes that I'm missing. But if that stays at 0.2, I'm not going to do anything. Clear, it should be zero, correct? It should be zero. So normally post-op, it's zero? After radioactive iodine. So when they do a total thyroidectomy, it'll come down real low. And then after radioactive iodine, that number should go to zero. Now, thyroglobulins made in normal thyroid and thyroid cancer. 
So the optimists say, well, you've got a little normal thyroid cell somewhere, so you don't worry the patients. The pessimists like me say, well, there's a thyroid cancer cell. We don't really know. It sounds like post-prostatectomy PSA. It is very similar to that. When we talk about using all these detection tools, we're finding people that have very, very low volume disease. It's very disconcerting to the patient. It's very disconcerting to the endocrinologist. Everybody wants that number to go away. Now, what point, if any, are medical oncologists getting involved with these patients? You know, amazingly enough, this is one of those weird niche tumors where it's largely taken care of by endocrinologists. A combination of endocrinology, surgery, and nuclear medicine is where the vast majority of thyroid cancers are being treated. The exceptions are the anaplastics, because the anaplastics are treated by oncologists, surgeons, and radiation oncologists, because anaplastic just terrifies most endocrinologists, so we're not involved in that. But most of the papillaries and folliculars and medullaries are being cared for by endocrine folks. What about predictors of response to these TKIs? You talked about the genetic analysis, but where are we right now in trying to predict what's going to happen? You know, I wish I could give you a better answer because it really is critical. My guess is right now with a PET scan, we could predict Hmm. because if these TKIs are really shutting off the metabolism of the tumors, their PET scan is probably going to change weeks to months before you get structural disease change. So I've tried on several of the trials to say, look, let's do a PET scan, start somebody on a TKI inhibitor, and then repeat the PET scan in two weeks. Huh and see if you can use that as a predictor. Those studies are so expensive because PET scans are so expensive, we haven't been able to do one. Other people have looked at, in medullary in particular, there may be some indication that the people who have the biggest decline in calcitonin and CEA over the first couple weeks are the responders. But, you know, there's nothing right now that we could use as an interim endpoint. But those are therapeutic trial predictors. What about pre-treatment predictors, tissue predictors, you know, pathways, et cetera? Uh, Yeah, there's been a whole variety of things done. I spent sort of five years looking at pathways and predictors, and we can show that if VEGF is up and CMET is up, its relative risk is higher for recurrence. But an individual patient doesn't help me too much. The best thing is actually the PET scan. One of the papers we wrote said real-time prognosis, so that years down the road we do a PET scan. If your distant metastasis are negative, it tells you about the biology of that tumor. They're going to be fine for a long time. If it's positive, it's more aggressive. We've also looked at rate of rise of thyroid globulin. When you hit this exponential rise in the tumor marker, then you get structural disease progression six months or a year later. So really, we're stuck with a PET scan, and in centers that can't do multiple PET scans, it's really rate of change of the cross-section imaging every six months.